Welcome back everybody to the Uncensored CMO and in this episode we are touching on one of my very very favorite subjects which is creativity. If you've worked in marketing as I have for many years you'll know just how important creativity is not just to marketing but to business in general even to your life in fact. I've quoted it a few times on the podcast but the famous data decisions research that found creativity after brand size was the single most important factor to success. So it's incredibly important that we as marketers embrace creativity, use creativity to solve difficult business problems. So I'm very delighted that in this episode I'm joined by none other than Kev Chesters who is co-author of the book The Creative Nudge. Now what Kev has done with his colleague is find out ways of helping all of us to become more creative or provide creative nudges as he's called it, simple ways and techniques that you can deploy to become more creative in your job, whatever your job is and whatever the challenges you face. I'm so passionate about creativity and I think it is so important to all breakthrough ideas and to being successful in business in whatever role you have. So this is just one of those really important episodes. Kev is fascinating. He has so much uh, knowledge and wisdom. He applies all that to the topic of creativity. So you'll really enjoy our conversation. Here we go, Kev Chester's How to Be More Creative. Welcome to the podcast, Kev. Uh, thank you. It's great to be here. Let's let's try and get to know you a bit. So what would be your claim to fame? I've got a few, actually. Uh, I once sung Steve Winwood's Higher Love on Dutch National Radio. That's I was actually one. once technically sued by Dr. Dre personally and but the other thing is that I've, I've got like a really weird tendency to bump into famous people in urinals and I, I don't know why <laughs> it just happens to me a lot so most famous person you've bumped into a urinal is Al Gore oh <laughs> that's impressive where where were you yeah. when you bumped into said Al Gore sorry uh, where was I I was at the TED conference in Vancouver but two other very bizarre encounters I've ever had in the urinal I once bumped into Tommy Hilfiger in a urinal in Berlin oh. when I was wearing a pair of Tommy Hilfiger boxer shorts and I thought it would make for quite a good like icebreaker and it just made me come across <laughs> as a psychopath. <laughs> oh, there's a, there's a great image in my head already. That's brilliant. I think yeah. I, I think mine would be Jimmy Nesbitt. I ended up in the urinals next to Jimmy Nesbitt once, who is a yeah. lot shorter than I thought. Isn't this the thing with celebrities is that it, it, you know on the screen they appear six foot tall. And then when you stood next to him, you go, oh, you're not quite as tall as I thought. The opposite of that, although he's not technically like a celebrity, is um, Osama bin Laden, who one would always think and I always thought was really short because obviously of cave complexes and you always yeah. see him sitting down, but was actually is, was six foot five. Six foot five. Wow. Is tall, tall. Oh, uh, I forgot to tell you, my the, one of the strangest urinal encounters I ever had was with the man never short of a catchphrase, Mr. Roy Walker, who oh. I bumped into, and and it was one. I know it sounds like like everyone always. It sounds like one of those things where you know what would say what you see, you know, say what you see, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. Uh, but no, every I went blank really, just sort of. I said hello. Stage fright. I know. I once got mistaken for Alistair McGowan at the BBC. And I wish I'd had a funny response to it because I just thought, hang on a minute, there are so many things I could do with this, mis- you know, this this, yeah. <laughs> this mistaken identity. And of course, I thought of all of them about, you know, five minutes too late. So all those amazing retorts you always have. You know, yes, exactly. You. you know, I could. I'm gonna have, I'm yeah. gonna have a bite of mince pie because we're we're festive. So I'm gonna. I'm, well, I've got I think some you mince pies. I, I don't know be... why I have some mince pies, but I have mince pies. Well, mince pies. I I, I mean, look, I I just. 
it's like cream eggs, isn't it? Like as soon as they become available, you just you just want them. Yeah, so listen, let's good. talk about creativity because look, I, I I love creativity and it's, it's probably my favourite subject actually because I just think it's one of those superpowers in business really and so important to success. And and you of course have uh, co-authored a book on creativity and which you called the Creative Nudge, which I'd love to get into in a second, but. Maybe we can start right at the beginning, really, which is um, why does creativity matter? I mean, interestingly, the the start point of, of the book was really that question. And Edward de Bono, the famous philosopher, he said that creativity makes life more fun and more interesting. And I kind of sort of started there, really, in the sense that, and it was a quote that my co-author, Mick, you know, had said to me. And... We, we suddenly thought, well, after the 18 months we've all just had, it was like, well, who wouldn't want their life to be more fun and more interesting? And, and it was such a fascinating quote that the key to that was creativity. And so that sort of unlocked the question, OK, if creativity, if, if, if it is the answer, what is it? You know, what is creativity? Yeah. You know, and then, then you start really opening. I don't know what the positive side of a Pandora's box is, but you open that. <laughs> and th- there's a very powerful business case for creativity as well, isn't there? And I know that the, the kind of well often quoted data decisions analysis showing that creativity was the second, had the second biggest impact on advertising or, or brand effectiveness after your size which of course you can't do much about your size because it is a consequence of everything you've done in the past but it's good to have some empirical support as well isn't it for the role creativity has in the success of any brand yeah i mean i think the other thing with that work that was done by data decisions that i think is really interesting is that they kept on updating it so it wasn't a once it wasn't a moment in time so i think they first did the analysis in about 2006 7 and then they updated it in 20. 12 I think so I remember doing a present I co-presented something with them on it I did the kind of executional part and they did the science part and then they've Mm. updated I think in 2016 as well I mean the interesting thing with the data decisions work is like you say the size of your brand isn't really something you can do anything about as a CMO you know exactly it's a consequence of all the other things on the list isn't it yeah exactly so actually I always argued when I was chatting with Data Decisions about it was actually creativity should probably be number one. Yeah. Because yeah. it is the one that you can affect as a CMO yeah. or, or an agency partner. So, yeah, I mean, but not just. I mean, the Data Decisions work is interesting. Obviously, the work that Burnett and Field did as well in the same area around the role that creativity plays. The bit that I always found fascinating about it, though, was always the fact that you had to do it in the first place. And this is something I've noticed about the sort of faith-based argument, if you like, around creativity and fame versus sort of logic and nerdling with your sort of Facebook carousel or whatever, which is the case for the defence in this argument, you know, the case for creativity, always has to turn up with reams of evidence, empirical evidence Mm. and data. And the other side just seems to have to go... Well, I don't believe, you know, and I've yeah. never seen them ever yeah. turn up with anything that refutes it. Well, I, you know, it's I, also one of those funny things. If you asked any, if you asked your gran, does the create, does, does how creative the advert is make you more or less likely to buy the product being sold? The answer would be yes. Right. And yet, for some reason, we in the, in the industry spend our lives trying to justify it. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that it would be in the sense that I've never met anybody in my entire life who told me that, you know, that they'd ever done anything off the back of an advert or that they ever That's remembered yeah, an advert. Yeah. And then, I, you know, you always just ask them what beans mean or, you know, it's, 
It's that great thing, isn't it? Someone saying, you know, I, I, I've never been influenced by an advert. That's why I always buy Square Deal Surf. Do you know what I mean? It's, I mean, <laughs> everybody is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they won't yeah. admit it, but you know, but but they no, are. That's very, very, know? very true. Yeah, even me. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? Yeah, none of us admit <laughs> to being influenced by advertising. Well, actually, I, we're actually, happy. I we're would. happy to work in advertising. Well, actually, I would. I, genuinely, I, I always, I'm very open about this. I would say there are actually only I can remember two occasions when I've bought something solely off the back of an advert. The first time was a Sony Bravia TV off the back of first seeing Sony balls, and the second was probably the most ill-advised purchase I ever made, which was rushing out to pair, buy a pair of twisted Levi's off the back of Frank Budgeon's uh, amazing film. And I came in with them, and my wife said to me. Well, you can wear them around the house, Kevin, but you're never going out wearing them. Brilliant. But but actually, but that, that, that is part of the power of advertising, isn't it? It's the fact that we're not even aware that it's having an effect on us, isn't it? it, it it's, I think that's, it, it's affecting our subconscious gradually yeah, over time and influencing our decisions, isn't it? Without us even realising. Like all dark persuasion, you know, I mean, and obviously that's the core part of the book is, you know, around the sort of behavioural science and evolutionary psychology, you know, around why creativity works, you know. Yeah. So do, do you think, well, one of the things that struck me early on in your book, which, which I, I think I was quite surprised at, do you really think everybody is creative or has the potential to be creative? I, I think a lot of this, John, comes down to what you mean by the word creative. Yeah. Now, creativity, as we say in the book, you know, we define creativity as original thinking. If you look in the dictionary, yeah. that's what it says it is. It doesn't mention kind of writing adverts or drawing mm. or whatever do you know what i mean or write it doesn't mention any of that it says original different thinking so when you say when the question is is everybody creative yeah everyone has the ability to think differently or apply different approaches to what they do for work or life so creativity is just the pursuit of the new now, where this becomes, I think, slightly fractious and unhelpful is when one defines creative as, you know, output of a creative department. Now, the only, we, we have received nothing but great encouragement and really, really good feedback on the book since we, since we released it. The only person who didn't, and they will remain nameless. I won't shame them on this uh, on this podcast. But but they said that they couldn't. That they were from an industry body, and they said they couldn't possibly endorse the book because it would tell clients that they could write their own creative work. Oh, it was that like the person really the person yeah yeah the person in 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 question couldn't imagine creativity in any other context of people writing adverts in a creative department and and i think it's really interesting i didn't write this book and neither did mick we didn't write this as an industry title and interestingly in a few countries america being one romania being another interestingly this book has been positioned in self-help not in marketing yeah you know, I think it's a life stage sense. book. Yeah. Do you know, one of the things I thought I'd do in just think, you know, preparing for, the, for this conversation is I set myself the task to write down the five most creative things I've done in my career. And actually, advertising appears in one. It's interesting that, isn't it? Because I think yeah. I know in our industry, we kind of the creative department, but actually the stuff I'm most proud of, and it was, it was the fifth one actually involved any advertising at all the other ones were organizational they were to do with customers you know do with selling situations they're solving a crisis so i love your definition of creativity i think that's really important and relevant to you know to a lot of people so um yeah no i'd i'd love to know as you look back then on on what you've done in your career 
what would you pick out as the the most the, the moments that creativity has shone most brightly or, or the most creative things you've been involved in yeah I think I'm very similar to you in the sense that you know I've uh, I've been I was going to say lucky but actually the decisions were conscious so it's probably not like but I, <laughs> I, I I've been fortunate in in my career that it's been very wide-ranging so you know I started off in digital and direct and then I went to the client side and then I came back in so I didn't really have a job in a sort of traditional above the line agency until I'd been in the industry for about nine years. My first job was at, my first above the line job was at Saatchi's in 2004. So I was a bit like you in the sense that creativity for me, you know, I got to apply it much wider. And, you know, some of the highlights of my career, you know, what one of them was when I was a client at BT, it was creating a, you know, we, 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 we had an issue which was we were losing so many customers every month. This was business customers to a thing called carrier pre-select, which basically meant that they could they could offer calls cheaper to businesses. You know, we were regulated, Ofcom regulated, everyone else wasn't. So we were legally regulated that we couldn't be the cheapest in the market. We always had to be the most expensive. It's, it's almost unique, BT's position. Wow. The, there aren't many other brands that you'll work with or for that have a government department that exists solely to make you fail. Yeah. That's, so that's what Ofcom is there for, right? So if you ever came up with a product that was competitive advantage, you were legally obligated to offer it to all your competitors. Hey. Uh, it, was, it was a very strange situation to be in. But what, what the product was, we had, we, had, we had to sit in a room and we were given one to develop a product that would solve the problem. And it was very interesting for me as a communications specialist, you know, someone who'd always worked in advertising or comms, whether it was digital direct or above the line, to actually, you know, the unit of creativity. We were, it was allowed to be anything. You know, was it an audience thing? Was it a tariff? Was it a product? Was it a campaign? We were just given a week to basically solve the problem. And it ended up being a product. It was a tariff. And it was interesting to me because to that point about, earlier on when that person couldn't believe create you know sometimes when you start talking about creativity people imagine you're going to turn up and go oh it was this telly ad you know or you know this mail pack or or this social media strategy or this influencer you know campaign and and that was creating a product which solved Mm. the problem which saved the business which you know and the team ended up getting like sort of marketing team of the year that 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 did it that I was part of and and yeah but then the other extreme of that you know we've all been involved in campaigns that we just love and I was lucky enough you know I ran the Honda business for six years three at Wyden three at McGarry Bowen you know worked on some you know amazing stuff that won you know everything probably though the two bits of advertising that I was most proud of creatively one was uh, Pony for three Oh, of course. So I pitched, yeah. I, I led the pitch on three, won the business, and then, not won the business myself, I mean, we won the business. Yeah. And three, there were other people involved. Pony was very interesting where it came from, which was there was only one brief from the client, which was we want to make the network matter, and we want to be known as the number one for the internet. And the brief was, please sell our all-you-can-eat internet tariff because it's the only one in the market. That was the brief. And the creative leap on it was you could talk about how good you were, you know, for people using the internet, or you could create something of the internet that lived in the internet that meant everybody would be talking about you and therefore would go, why have three 
done an ad that simply consists of 60 seconds of a moonwalking horse to Fleetwood Mac, they would ask the question. You go, well, it's because all the stuff we pass around on the internet isn't silly. You know, it's actually quite important. You know, and we'd found this PhD thesis on the science of lol. Amazingly, someone was paid to do that. But it basically proved that <laughs> at the time, the received wisdom was that people people uploaded things on the internet to make themselves look good. What mm. the PhD thesis proved was that people uploaded things on the internet to make other people feel good. That's and so it wasn't, it wasn't a lol cat, you know, or a silly video. It was a way that the shy girl could talk to the hot guy on the bus... Because she could send him a thing saying lol. She wouldn't go up and speak. But it was a way that a mum, you know, who whose 15-year-old son used to be her best friend, but now she had nothing in common with, could yeah. send him a lot. You know, it, it was a way to that's connect. Brilliant. And that's why the line at the end was silly stuff. It matters. Because it did. It mattered more than anything. But yeah. if we'd done an ad saying, we've got great internet tariffs, we've got load, no one would have cared. So no, they wouldn't. You know, they wouldn't. So that was a and, great and I, creativity. I, 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 I bet if you actually ask people, does three have great prices and a good, you know, a good tariff and good network, they would have probably said yes anyway, because you made them laugh and they, they yeah. felt good about the brand, didn't they? You know, so it, it, it's real system one kind of stuff that actually, I mean, amazing. Just your Well, of course it BC, was, actually. of course, John. It was, of course, tested for I know. system one. And system one was plug. the reason it ended up on. And it was a five, and it was a five star ad. It was well. a five star um, ad. Yes, quick, quick plug. And it remains, in fact, it remains the best ad in telecoms to this day. It's still number one by quite some margin, actually. So take, take a bow. My friends, well done. But I love your BT one as well because actually, there's so much just in you know just in your short telling of that story because you had an incredible constraint, didn't you? I mean, how crazy to have to be the most expensive. There was a crisis. You didn't have much time. And interesting when you when you explained when you explained the background to yourself as well, talking about moving in different industries, you're also coming into it from possibly outside the normal you know, the kind of normal role you'd expect to someone in a, in a kind of BT marketing department to have. I, I mean, so much of that, I think, is 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 where creativity comes from, isn't it? You know, you know, constraints, crises, you know, different yeah. perspectives are all really important. I mean, there's quite a lot in there, but I imagine those things were part of the reason why you were so brave and, and bold in the solution. Yeah, I mean, it's. I would never say this to a finance director, but you know, often, I mean, budget can be the enemy of imagination, right? I mean, if suddenly someone turns up, you know, with all the money to do a ninety-second epic, you might be tempted to do a ninety-second epic. Oh, you know, if you can't, yeah. if you can't out, I mean, I've often talked to clients about this. If you know, if you, if you can't outspend or outshout, all you're left to do is outthink and outsmart. Be aren't more you? creative. I mean, you can't, yeah. yeah. I mean, Churchill had that famous quote about never letting a good crisis go to waste. The only problem is, I think, it can be a catalyst for creative thinking. Of course it can. It's very rare that you don't have constraints. I mean, we're not artists, right? We're commercial artists. So we have patrons and therefore you'll have a constraint, you know, whether that be what they want or it be budget or it be time or whatever. I think, I think though, what you have to do, and there's a lot of this in the book, is understand the nature of the constraints you're putting on and the impact they will have. So... In order to get somewhere really good, you have to be prepared to be wrong and you have to get lost in the fog. That's what Dan Wyden used to call it. He said, you've got to get lost in the mm. fog. And the thing with that is that takes a little bit of time and it takes you prepared to be wrong. And so that's one thing. The other thing is there's this really weird kind of desire that certain clients have to industrialize creativity. They sort of try and pretend that there's a process or a way 
And and believe me, if there was a way or anyone had discovered one, you know, they wouldn't be telling you about it. They'd be in a hollowed out <laughs> volcano somewhere auctioning it to the highest yeah. bidder. Do you know what I mean? So, so there, there, there isn't yeah. a five stage process to creativity. And the other constraint I think people have is it has been proven. Some wonderful work was done at Harvard to prove that creativity is stunted by 45% when operating under a really short day. So it may well be that it only takes you 15 minutes to come up with a brilliant idea, but that might happen in the middle of eight hours. You know, it might be that 15 minutes. And and, And so creativity is properly stunted under a really tight time constraint. So it, so in that sense, it doesn't help you. And that That's is where... so we'll... interesting. Well, because I think there is this conventional wisdom that, 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 you know, when you're pitching or you're under pressure or the client reduces the deadline, that the sort of myth is that that's what, you know, creates the conditions for creativity to emerge. But that challenges that, doesn't it? What it creates the conditions... You can't for... rush it in that sense. Sorry, I was a bit mince pied up then. Yeah. What it, what it creates the conditions for is consensual validation and confirmation bias. Mm. Because what happens in those situations is, because people are under a time constraint, they convince themselves that an early answer is right, and then find all the evidence to justify that rather than still exploring. And it's why nothing good ever came out of a workshop. Because what happens in workshops <laughs> is everybody panics that there's a deadline yeah. and they've got to get it done within two hours or whatever. Yeah. So they fall in love with their first answer, validate it from whatever they hear. And it's nearly always, in fact, maybe I will claim it is always crap. I love this. We've killed the brainstorm. I they love don't it. Work. It's so true because if I, th- if I go through all my top creative ideas in the five I wrote down, none of them were in a brainstorm or a workshop. You've nowhere near you've got to get lost in the you've yeah. got to go off you know you don't i know it's a bit of a cliche to say it but it's that classic line of david ogilvy's back in the day of you know search all your parks and all your cities you'll find no statues to committees you know <laughs> i mean you don't you, you don't have them you know great no. creativity i mean look, it's slightly different i mean obviously in america a lot of great stuff is written you know in writing rooms and various things but that's normally people bringing ideas and then again and there's something else david ogilvy said which i always loved he said a lot of things, actually, and, and, and some of them really good. He, he said that thing that there's no idea that you can ever have that won't be improved by showing it to a friend. He's somebody who thinks differently. You don't have to take on board what they say, but a different brain will look at it. And I think this is what's been interesting about co-authoring the book. Because Mick and I are very different personalities. I'm a strategist. He's a creative. Now, normally, people would say, oh, well, that's, you know, that's a bit odd. They're very different, and they are different. But in a way, the writing process we went through for this is a manifestation of how the two of us work together every day, which is, you know, we've always called it unimaginatively creative thinking because (laughs) we work as a team. We've always worked as a team. I don't come up with strategy that I haven't already talked to him about because I think to myself, well, I'm going to have to know that this is in some way fertile. It's going to have to trigger something in someone's brain at some point. And he never works on anything without sitting me down and going, do, do people actually do this? And so, <laughs> yes. you know, so yeah. in the sense, that's what was nice about the co-authoring process. And, but, but then you have to respect skill sets. And you're, one of your yes. earlier questions you asked me was about what is creative. And I'm not saying that everybody can write creative work. They can't. That's a specialist skill. 
And despite what Michael Gove might think, we haven't had enough of experts. We need experts. If you want an expert opinion or an expert execution, you're better off asking an expert. And so in that sense, I think that specialisms, of course, when it comes to execution, but every everybody has the ability to think creatively. Oh, I've lost you. I think you're still there. I can see you. Can you see me? Oh, yeah. So it said your video had been disabled. It said your video had been disabled, so that's fine. Yes, I don't know why. Anyway, so yeah, so anyway, sorry, yes, 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 I lost the thread of what you were asking me. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny, I, I'll, I'll go back to tell you a bit of the story, actually, because one of your comments earlier, you were talking about, you know, budget, whether budget is a constraint. It's quite funny. I remember uh, years ago, very early in my career, I worked at Britvic, and there was this kind of internal phrase where they used to say in a brainstorm, just imagine if you had no money, what would you do? And it always made me laugh because... We never really came up with any ideas when anyone asked that question because we were sat there going, well, I know I have got five million quid, you know, as a budget. And then I actually left Britvic and went to work in a, in, in a sort of an SME where we actually did have no money. Mm. And when I wrote down my top five most creative moments in my career, three of them were with zero. And, and the one that I kind of put at the, at the top, which, you know, I thought if I had to rank this, what would I say the most creative situation was? was I was, I was managing a juice brand and I, I was pitching to the world's biggest contract caterer, contract catering business, which, which again was a bit crazy because, you know, we were this tiny little juice business and we were up against the biggest soft drink company in the world in this tender process. And we, we, we lost. In fact, we failed dismally in the pitch process. And that, in fact, so badly that they said to us, John, not only are you nowhere near the price, you are basically twice the price of where we've actually ended up through the tender yeah. process. So they said, look, you know, and at the time it was it was a particular range that was suitable for being sold in schools. And there was legislation that had just come out. In fact, I'd responded to the tightening legislation with a range specifically for schools. Anyway, I kind of thought, damn it, I don't like losing. This is this feels bad. And then a few weeks later, a letter arrived in my inbox. Now, I must have signed up as, a, you know, as a, as a potential supplier in, in their procurement process. And they must have assumed that I was actually supplying to them because they wrote me a letter. Now, bear in mind, this is a massive, you know, tens of thousand people company. Dear Mr. Evans, we'd like you to come and present your your plans for next year to at our global, you know, at our global conference kind of thing. And I thought, oh, what do I do? I thought, I'm not a supplier. I've not been listed. We've not agreed the price. I have no plans for next year, quote unquote. What the hell do I do now? There's a little detail in my story that's actually be- actually becomes quite important to the creativity is that what this is a contract caterer and the contract caterer supplies schools, but the schools decide from the range that they have available what they actually stock in the school, right? So they've got discretion to buy off a list and so on. So the world's number one soft drink, I won't mention who, but the world's number one soft drink manufacturer has a lot of people that go around the schools and basically do the ordering and, and fill the you know fill the shelves and convince the local you know that the sort yeah. of individual school buyer you know to, to stock the products and i and i had no salespeople at this point in time and i thought what am i going to do anyway the idea i had was to i created the company the brand i was working was called juice burst i created the juice burst entrepreneur scheme and what I basically pitched the company, bear in mind I wasn't a supplier, was I will create a entrepreneur scheme where I will basically employ a group of six school kids in each school to run their own P&L and business to promote 
the juice range to come up with the design to order the inventory to set the pricing to experiment with you know this that the other to create events where they you know where they supply the food and drink and i would do it as a as an unaccredited kind of competition and that the winning team would spend a day at our factory and would create the future range of flavors and and i went to the factory and i spent 300 pounds right i hired a cameraman for the day film me on the production line i say hi it's john here from juice burst would you like to be in this factory this time next year seeing your juice come off the line your flavor your design your name on it if you'd like to do that join the juice burst entrepreneur scheme and in partnership with this company you can run your very own business from your school and learn all about sales and marketing and, and production and so on. And anyway, so I went to the annual conference, given I wasn't a supplier, and I just got up on the stage and I pitched this idea and they loved it. And in fact, the feedback was, we're going to make this the number one initiative throughout every school that we supply in the whole country. And I still wasn't a supplier. So I then had to, I then had to basically go to procurements and, uh, and negotiate my way into the range. And I ended up being stocked at full price, at the list price, not even the discounted price, at the list price for my juice because they'd already bought into this idea that they were gonna. And in fact, I ended up winning an award with, as, as the supplier of the year. And the reason for the nomination for the award, they, they, called, they, they called it the Employability Award and they thanked me for my contribution to education and future employment prospects. And we ended up selling, I mean, it sold, bear in mind, this is a 12 million turnover brand. We did 600,000 in the first year with that one customer. What, what, one, so of the key lessons, one of the key lessons of that for me is that custom thing of just, just refusing to ever believe you're out of the process. <laughs> yes, I know. So tell somebody, like I, I, one of my old creative directors would always have this line during like new business, which was always, as long as you're not out, you're still in. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And it, it's, it is kind of, but, but honestly, the thing with budget, the constraint thing with budget is that, you know, I've often found that people often think they haven't got the budget to do things. And I think that the challenge for me creativity there is that I, I've always loved that old Red Adair quote where he said, if you think it's expensive to hire a professional to do the job, wait until you hire an amateur. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, then yeah. it really gets expensive because you have to do yeah. it about 10 times over and keep repeating it and you don't get the right answer first time, you know. And I think too often, you know, so it, there's two sides obviously to that, you know, but I always thought a much better question than what would you do if you had no money was the question that my, two of my, so when I, Paul and Angus, who are two old creative partners of mine who I love to bits and, and I loved working with, they would always ask the question, not what would we do if we had no money? They'd always ask, what would I do if this was my dad's money? You know, if it, if it wasn't some stranger's money that I could spaff up the wall, yeah. you know, like if yeah. this was my, if my dad was giving me this yeah. and it was somebody I really like, would I still be asking, would I still be doing the same thing? You yeah. know, and, and I always thought it was a really interesting question of, you know, imbuing the response with kind of, you know, emotional endowment. And there's quite a bit in the That's book about so it, like the endowment yeah. effect, you know. But it, yeah. it isn't, it's a more interesting question. But really, I always come back to the, the, the tyranny of the brainstorm because yes, I've never seen, I've you know that people always have a thing, there's no bad idea in a brainstorm. It's really not true. But yeah. I've seen lots of <laughs> really totally bad idea true, in yeah. a brainstorm. I've had loads of really yeah. bad ideas. In brain. yeah, I know what they yeah. mean by it, which is don't discourage, yeah. you know. But it, it, the much better way is to brief a really talented creative person with the challenge and problem and let them have a little bit of time 
to get lost in the fog, to explore things, to be prepared to be wrong, to get somewhere, mm. and then maybe build on it. But honestly, I find our industry so curious that they do this. I mean, you wouldn't sit around in your dentist surgery and go, right, we're going to have a big brainstorm now about what to do with his teeth. <laughs> Which teeth like, should no. we pull out? You know, yeah. Exactly. You know, you wouldn't do it in virtually any other, you know, no. we'll go down the baker's and go, right, okay, okay, well, look, we know that you're the baker, but we've all just decided to sit around and decide what sort of donuts you're making. I mean, <laughs> it's insane. Yeah, that's so true. And I mean, you know, having like had a quite a long career client side marketing as well. I mean, you, you're absolutely right in, in terms of creative ideas can come from anywhere and anybody can be creative. But sometimes that means the experts don't get asked, which I find crazy. So, you know, and well, yeah, I've been through John, periods Sometimes, John, it's even, it's even weirder than that, which is you employ an expert at quite a high price and then ignore what they tell you. Ignore their advice In entirely, order yes. to do it yourself, when you could have just done yeah. that in the first place. Yeah, yeah. But look, I don't think, you know, I, I don't think, it's not, a, you know, it's not a solely client problem. I think agencies don't help themselves by often, you know, a lot of the time settling for pretty average answers and then trying to convince clients that they're brilliant, you know, and it's <laughs> just not the case. I mean, something else that struck me as I looked at my list, actually, my sort of top five was, was, the role of discomfort, if I can put it like that, because actually when I looked at all the moments of real creativity, they followed discontent or crisis of some kind. I, I know in your book, you talk about chaos. You know, one one time I came up with a very innovative organizational solution to Britvic's challenge of being more innovative sort of thing in terms of I changed the organizational design, the way we work, the way we set up ourselves and how we went to market and, and how we marketed brands in a different way but I only came up with that because I was discontent with where I was in my career and I spent a few days away from the business and I suddenly thought oh this isn't working why isn't it working and I was troubled by it and over about three day period I said yes I know what it is because we're failing at innovation and it was I had to take myself out of the situation but it started from discontent and in fact all, pretty much all of them have a crisis that precede the creativity in a sense and it's an interesting observation in the sense, if you imagine, if you're trying to go somewhere new, which you have to in order for it to be creative. So that's that's mm. why chapter one's called, if you know what you're doing, stop doing it. Because it literally stop can't it, be yeah. creative if you know what you, if you've done it yeah. before. But I think the where the challenge, where I think it's always going to start in some form of unmet need or discontent is that if you're coming up with a new solution, by definition, the status quo won't be right. So, so, you know, so one of the things that we always work on at Harbour is the first thing we talk to a client about is we identify what we call the sea of same. You know, every yes. category has yes. one, a set of tropes, a set of behaviours yep. that everybody just slides into because that's the way you talk mm. in this sector. Mm. And you get, well, the brain is hardwired to only notice the noticeably different because it is the single most efficient while simultaneously lazy organ that was ever created you know it it will do because it had to back in the day of course you know back when there was back when there was no waitrose and there was no police force and there was no tinder you know if you wanted to get food you wanted to get protection and you wanted to procreate right you needed to focus you know you really <laughs> needed to concentrate yeah. and so you had to get rid of all the extraneous and focus on the threat or the reward right the two twin dynamics of human behavior 
has to either be a threat or a reward, right? So this this is this is why I think you know it ends up this thing of discontent because it's it's new and it's different, and yeah. then by definition, doing that that will mean that it's taking you somewhere new. Now humans yeah. hate the new. Like, we're really scared of it. Neophobia, right? We get really really spun out and uncertain in new situations. So because of that, we walk away from them. You know, and one of the things I've always said to clients is or creatives actually the reason you can tell you're onto something is when you're scared yes. if you start being scared yeah. that oh my god like i'm going to get in trouble for this or no one's going to like this or they're not going to buy this you go right that's when you keep going that yeah. is when yeah, you know you've got advice. something to pursue when you feel yeah. that fear you go right that's the moment you know you've got an insight or that's the moment mm. you've got something really powerful because it will trigger mm. the fight or flight. It will trigger mm. the right. Your, all your evolutionary makeup will, oh my God, this is new. This is different. This is unrecognizable. I'd better run a mile from it. It's so true. And the other thing I've noticed in my career is the tyranny of average as well because when, when your brand is doing okay, that's yeah. the worst situation ever because you tend to do what you did last year. You tend not to challenge yourself. You tend not to lift your ambition and so on. And, and, and I think it's either when I've done really well or really bad that, that I've been really creative. I've very rarely been creative when things are going okay. And in fact, you almost have to force a crisis on yourself, you know, to, to I, I think to be creative when you're in that well, and sort crises, of crises zone. will you know crises will be forced on. I think again going back to when we talked about the data to decisions work on size of brand. If you're one of these billion dollar brands, you know, like a Head and Shoulders at P and G, you know what I mean, or or a Dove at Unilever or whatever. If you're one of these really big brands, you can go okay. Well, two percent year on year incremental growth on a billion dollar brand there's a lot of money it is. you're doing all right now of course you know humans suffer from loss aversion yeah okay it's five out of ten but what would happen if it went to three out of ten you know but most people aren't in that situation and the other thing that what happens when you're with those brands if you sit and you bimbo along quite happy to keep running you know, the same sort of, forgive me, kind of anodyne, the best a man can get, chin-stroking and air-punching cliches. Someone will come along like a dollar shave club and you'll suddenly have to yes. pay a ludicrous amount of money to take them out of the market when you probably could have paid 5% of that money and, and, and marketed to the point or created your own innovation, which meant you wouldn't have to pay 10 times over the odds of yeah. market price to buy them out of the market. So I think Mick's, Mick's always had this thing, and, and again, it's in the book, but he said it to me the first time I ever met him in a pub about six years ago, that his creative philosophy was this thing of hate six. He hates the idea of six out of ten. Really hates it. You know, he would much rather someone spectacularly failed in the pursuit of ten. Now, of course, you know, one could argue, well, that's someone else's money that you're playing with. But I think all the best, you'll know, John, all the best clients, right, take risks they're not reckless but they take risks because that is the way that you get somewhere new and interesting and different and I come back to that de Bono quote at the start right so de Bono had two quotes that are in the book at the start one is that creativity is the key to um, a happy you know more fun life more fun and interesting life so great everyone wants that but the second quote which is less quoted of his which I always loved 
was that creativity is the only key to progress. Mm. Now, progress That's is true. interesting mm. because it's commercially powerful. And yeah. progress just means, you know, new ground, getting to new places. And so if you want to move on, if you want to get anywhere new, again, it has to be creative by the dictionary definition. And by I mean that, you know, the pursuit of the new, the different, the original, you know, tiny top hats, electric scooters, three quarter length jeans and hanging about on Mare Street in Hackney. I don't mean that level of creativity. I mean, you know, yeah. real proper creativity. Applied thinking. creativity, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's applied to a need or a problem or a opportunity, isn't it? Well, and I think it's that coming goes together. Back to of... what, sorry, that was that, that goes back to the thing I was saying about sometimes in our industry, I think we kind of make the mistake, and this is why clients are good because they remind us not to make this mistake. We make the mistake that we're artists, you know, fine artists, uh, and we're not. You know, uh, we're commercial artists. We're the commercial application of creativity. If And commercial artists have patrons. And if those patrons don't like what you do, they're well within yeah. their rights to either not pay you or tell you to paint it again. Yeah, yeah, that's so right. So I think, in, I think in that sense, you know, it is, a, like you say, it is applied creativity. But in the book, yeah. some of this, and I'm not saying that you can't apply all of the book to marketing or advertising, you know, you know or communications, but it's more fundamental than that in the sense of the pursuit of the new. You know, what we've seen in the last 18 months, two years, you know, Mick has a wonderful line he wrote in the book. Anyone would think he was a writer. But no, he, he, he wrote this lovely um, line in the book about you can bring creativity to any field, you're even a big muddy field. You know, and the, and the joke of it is, you know, you can be a creative farmer. You know, and what lockdown taught us all is, you know, we suddenly had to become creative parents. And, you know, we suddenly had to be teachers and make lessons interesting, you know, or creative grandparents. And, and I think the biggest mistake people make is in not applying creativity to jobs or roles that people think aren't creative. One of the most creative people I ever met, or certainly I, th I thought one of the people who helped us to be the best creative company we could be, was a lady called Bronwyn, who was the head of finance at Wyden and Kennedy. Now, normally you don't really apply the words creative and finance because it sounds like sort of cooking books. But what I mean by what she did, she understood that her role, like the role of everybody in a creative company, was to create the conditions within which brilliant creativity could thrive. So what she would think in her role was, OK, well, if we need 500k to make that idea a reality, but we've only got 400, all right, what can we do? And it might brilliant. be that you bill differently. It might be that you pull some money forward. It might be there's another job over here where oh, we haven't spent all the money on that. So why don't we talk to the client about moving some of the, and and it's just applying new original. And so I always thought Bronwyn was, Bronwyn was amazing in that way. You know, she was as much part of creating the conditions for creativity, yeah. you know, as any planner or any account person. And you can bring creative thinking to your job. And I'm doing something at the moment with a client in the area of financial services software, right? And you think, but I've been studying the audience and the audience want to be liberated, you know? They, they don't like doing the boring bits. That wasn't why they got into the job. So the product can take that away from them so they can do the bits of the job that made them want to do it in the first place. And I think whatever you're doing, you know, the law, I mean, look, I'm not naive enough and also not unaware enough of my privilege to know what we're really talking about here.
you know, because in the sense that, yes, there's a lot of jobs where you can't really bring creativity to them. And I'm being naive if I said that you could. But what I'm talking about is the majority of people who will buy this book have the greatest gift on earth, right, which is the gift of choice. There are two billion people on earth who have no choice every day but to live or die. There's probably another two billion that are living on five dollars mm. or less a day, right? When you're talking about the arrowhead of the kind of people who buy books like the creative yeah. nudge, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, in most cases, from a professional context, they have a choice of what they do. So therefore, you have a choice as to make your job interesting or not. The other side, though, for me is what I really want this book to be, and Mick is especially really passionate about this is all the people who are told in their life that you're not creative. You know, people like us don't do that kind of thing. We're not those sort of people. And and anybody can be creative. You know, I, I often say yeah. that I wrote this book, my half, for my mum. You know, my mum left school 18, went into the NHS, worked every day of her life as a nurse from when she was 18 years old to when she retired. She told me all through my childhood that she had a novel in her, you know, she, she's she got this amazing novel in her head she was going to write, but then, like, life got in the way. Kids got mm. in the way. Job got in the way. Everything got in the way. And then she said, when I retire, I'll be writing it. Oh, no, your grandma wasn't very well. Okay, well, now your grandma's mm. died. I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. And she never did it. And she died uh, this year. And all over her bedroom are scraps of this bloody novel that's oh, never been really? written and never getting... Oh, and, and, yeah. and, and, you know, luckily the book was published, you know, before she died, so she got to see it. But but Brilliant. to me, you know, it is, it is for people to go, do you know what? Creativity is not the reserve of the posh or the privileged, you know, or the incredible artists. Yes. You, know, you can bring original thinking to any challenge that you have. It's just about, first off, it's about creating the conditions, and second off, it's about the bravery, because it, people will be scared. And when I say creating the conditions, it's so beholden. I've done a lot of talks on the book in the last few months, you know, for some amazing companies. I've taken it to Lego and Google, and it's been really interesting, right? And, and one of the things about the conditions that I keep saying to people is it's beholden on leaders and managers. It's very easy for people, you know, to go, and I've had this a lot from the more junior staff in companies saying, well, I came up with ideas, but they always get crapped on or they don't happen or they get... And so leaders and managers have to create the conditions where people feel comfortable to fail or make mistakes yeah. or yeah. try things because otherwise you're just wasting time. That's so interesting. I, I was listening to Jimmy Carby interviewed on Stephen Bartlett's podcast and he, he, well, first thing he said, he said, I have more failed jokes than anyone I've ever met. You know, that was that was quite interesting. And, and he also said, he, he used to work in marketing actually for Shell, which I didn't know, that was quite, he was on the graduate scheme. And he said he was only able to achieve his dreams when he worked, effectively worked for himself, made himself considerably poorer. And, and as he talked about, you know, a, a failed comedian working the pub circuit every night, but he worked harder and he practiced and he just said every single time he learned which jokes worked, which ones didn't, yeah. and he went again. And you just think he, you know, you, you could have taken that failure. You could have thought, well, my lot is my, my path now is the brand management program at Shell and that sort of thing. And, and I just think so how we set up society, education. I mean, you know, I, I know when we, when we were kind of young bucks, you do the milk round and the mm. graduate scheme. And in a way, I see I, 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 I for my career, I, I, I almost wish I hadn't had that because the path is set for you and there's an expectation of your role and your position and what you can and can't do and 
you know, education teaches you to seek the right answer and to align with the prevailing narratives and stuff, isn't it? Education certainly encourages homogenisation because obviously a lot of it is to do with budgets. So, you know, that's how things like care homes or schools or the army... You know, it's why they work. You know, you, everyone has to eat the same yogurt at the same time or wear the same tie or whatever, you know. It's all to do with, you know, economies of scale. But I think with the advent of new technology, you know, we are able to personalise curriculum, right? We, we can, if you're bothered to do it, if you can be bothered to do it. And I think that, you know, going back to the most watched TED talk of all time, Ken Robinson's talk on schools killing creativity. They do, but it's mostly because they, you know, I think it was Picasso, wasn't it, who said that the the artist is the child who survived. You know, society, oh, really? <laughs> society will try yeah. and crush it out of you. Yeah. You know, and in the yeah. book we talk about it as the twin conspiracy. You know, so you've got a conspiracy of bio. So all your natural programming will stop you doing new things because that's what got you killed back in the day and oh i wonder if i eat this berry or i wonder if i stick my head in that yeah, thing's yeah. mouth you know i mean all that stuff you know so you've got the you've got the tyranny of biology that will stop you doing new and interesting things yeah. but the much bigger part of the conspiracy is sociology it's societal conditioning that will crush it out of you you know you've you've got to go along with consensus you know you see it in appraisals is he a team player you know the the bloody brainstorms again you know and and, well, you, and everybody is encouraged that you know it's good to have consensus to get quorum and actually it isn't what's really good is I, to have positive dissent I, I love that in your book actually and so you know one thing i'm glad we've killed is we've killed the brainstorm right i think that's brilliant because that that that's all fake that's fake i would love to kill consensus as as our second you know thing in this i mean the thing i think that you, you really gets you know is the power dynamics in any meeting are so fascinating yeah you know if the most powerful person in the room breathes an opinion has an opinion and then you just see how everybody else reverses their opinion and i've, I've been in situations where someone has told me something outside a meeting and then said the complete opposite because the CEO happened to voice an opinion and everyone feels immediately their job is to fall in line and overcommit to how enthusiastic well, they you, are. You, you, and you, you'd walk off a cliff for the, you know, for the wrong opinion. I think it's crazy. You, you, get, you get into those really, really silly situations, you know, the, that kind of illusion of flat hierarchy when you get into that silly pantomime where people go round the yeah. room from the most junior yeah. and, it's, and it's all it's all a bit silly performance art i think the thing with consensus is you, you can't have dissent forever at some point you've got to decide we're going that way and okay fine and then everybody gets into the kind of executional delivery side of it but what you shouldn't have is fast consensus so there's a hmm. story in the book that I tell about Alfred Sloan. He used to have the you know the great management guru of the sort of twenties and thirties, and he used to have his board meetings. He'd always say, "Does everybody agree we should do this?" And if everybody did, he'd send them away for a fortnight to think of some more things. Because uh, he said, "If, if you agree good. too quickly, the, yeah. the, the story I You're love not telling in the, the truth. The story I yeah. love in the book about it, and and also by the way, a lot of it, if you've done a lot of international business, does depend on cultural norms." It does. So, so That's again, true. if you're doing yeah. business in a place yeah. like um, Japan, for instance, and you've Japan's got a con- a great you've got yeah. a concept in Japan called nemowashi, which is sort of loosely translates yeah. as like the meeting around yeah. the meeting. So the meeting, the meeting isn't is there. never the meeting. Yeah, in the Japan. meeting isn't it's, the meeting. It, the, the, they fall asleep in meetings because there is literally no purpose to a meeting. Yeah, the pur- I mean, the purpose asleep. of the meeting, the twin and purpose of the meeting, is either to endorse the decision that's already been taken in front of the group, 
or to provide the decision maker with the information he or she needs to make the decision, which is the total opposite of how we are taught meetings work. So it took me a while to get my head around that. But the story, the story in the book I like about dissent and hating consensus is that one about the, the choice of saints in the Vatican. So in the 16th century, Pope, Pope Sixtus V, if ever they wanted to get new saints... They were canonising people. They'd get a uh, committee together of cardinals and they'd basically decide who was going to be a saint. And the Pope, Pope Sixtus, created a position on that council with a person whose only job it was, was to provide all the dissenting points for why this person wasn't very good and shouldn't be a saint. So their job was basically to sit there and say all the sins and all the crap the person had been up to, which meant that they wouldn't make a very good saint. And that position That's was called the, the devil's advocate. It's where the term comes from. Yes. And, yes, and so yes. he was basically the devil's advocate in the room. He would put together all the evil. He put all the evil forward that the person had yeah. done. And that position was abolished in the 19th century. And since then, we've had three times as many saints canonized. So I'm going to posit a theory that we haven't got as good mm. as saints as we used to have. Yeah, you know, well, there's yeah. a bit of a quality control good... issue. Going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it. So, a, a, a similar technique to that that I've adopted recently is is the idea of doing a pre mortem rather than a post mortem, where basically you, you're 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 embarking on a new idea, innovation, initiative, whatever, and what you do is you start and go, it's going to fail in six months' time. Why has it failed? And you you brutally give the reasons for its failure before it's even started. And then, of course, what you do is you go, well, how do we then go ahead with this? assuming it's going to fail and what would we do to make sure those things never happen it's quite uncomfortable because it can feel like oh man i'm ripping my idea to shreds but it doesn't half get you thinking but you should rip your go, you should rip your ideas to threads you know i mean well, again one of the things that we talk about in the book is not falling in love with your first idea because it's always rubbish yes and kill the first idea that's that's the third thing <laughs> well, you, well, you, this do, podcast. you know your first idea is genuinely terrible and, and of course, you always fall in love with your... I mean, one of the things I think is interesting about what you were just talking about is there's this weird sort of tendency people have when they're like, oh, you know, it needs to be positive. Don't accentuate the negative. Why are you being negative? And human beings have got six primary emotions and five of them are negative. Yeah. There was a good reason yeah. for that. It kept us alive. It got us to the top of the food chain. And, and so I, I've never understood. And obviously, you'll know from system one, you know, the power in communications of emotions like disgust or fear, mm. you know, they are really powerful emotions. And, and I don't see, like you say, any problem with looking at something and going, OK, you know, what I have a technique I use on this, which I don't expose publicly. I do it myself with ideas. And uh, Mick always likes me doing it on his behalf, but I call it locking the fire escapes. What I do is if there's an idea or a strategy or, you know, an approach that we've got, I think of all the fire escapes of it. Like as in what are all the ways someone can say no to it? What are the things people are going to say in various things? And then I just lock them all so you can't get out. You know, so and, and it's quite an interesting debating technique. And I used to. That's interesting. Yeah, I, 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 in fact, I adopted that. So strangely, on my on my list of top five, actually, the organisational one when I was working for Britvic, the the CEO at the time, when I was doing the whole pre-alignment, you know, I, I did his little, you know, it's a bit like running a presidency candidate, candidate or whatever. I went round the individual members of the board and I basically said to them, give me every reason why my proposal is going to fail, right? Give me all your objections. And I, I, had, I think I had a list of about 25 and, I, you know, there were maybe seven or eight board members and I had this long list of 25. 
And then what I did, it, I did the assumptive close when I had the board presentation because I took all their objections and I wrote the mitigation for every single one. And I just turned up and I said, I, I've got all your objections in advance of the meeting and I've answered all the objections. So I'm assuming on that basis, you're all happy with my proposal and prepared to go ahead. And the CEO said, yes. And it was just, it was quite a weird thing because it was quite a ballsy proposal as well. And I thought, oh, bugger, I've actually got to do it now. <laughs> One of those kind well, of scary I think, meetings. I, think but I remember the phrase he, he said he said to me, I remember Paul saying to me, take away every single reason for me to say to this proposal and you'll have a yes. And that was the advice he gave when I said to him, how will I get this through the board? I'd never presented to a board before at the time. And I was being naive and said to the CEO, how do I get something approved here? Sort of thing, a naivety, you know, kind of thing. But the, the, the thing that, you know, what's, what's really interesting about the, the, the board piece there you know, is I used to train people on the best practice of constructing arguments because we're never taught to argue because we're told as kids, don't argue, stop arguing. Stop arguing. Actually, arguing is really useful. Right? Yeah. Uh, being able to construct an argument and then understand different ways arguments are put together and context of them and various things. And it was exactly that. One of the best things to do when constructing an argument is to anticipate the counter and then, yeah. then knock it down. It's why I always like, you know, people with pitching, they'd always often sort of say, oh, can we go last or can we go ever? I always like going first because what I would often do would be set up a few of the counter arguments. Well, you may hear that oh, this nice. is the I way like to go. I like it. But you know what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me just tell you why that would be really silly. Yeah. You, Some people may posit that. And then basically, because what you do is you sort of think to yourself, well, if I can knock out two or three arguments in their mind, if then someone comes in later on, they go, yeah. well, they're quite compelling, but hang on a minute. I know this yeah, is wrong. We already know this. Yes, <laughs> yes. Now, I, I, I used to use this technique in pitch situations, which I think has been adopted quite widely now. But at the end of the pitch, I would go around the room and just go, could you share with me every reason that's in your head right now as to why we wouldn't win the pitch? Because I'd love the opportunity to respond to that now to give you absolute certainty if there's any doubt in your head you've got questions you've seen another pitch from somebody else and you know if there's a reason why we wouldn't win tell me now and i'll come yeah back it to works you. It, it does it works you know. very well in the sense again i mentioned paul again uh, paul jordan my old creative partner he would always ask clients exactly the same thing he basically when he presented work he'd always have this really good question which was what's the worst thing you can think of to say about what i've just shown you really interesting <laughs> You'll be really polite to me as a creative and you'll tell me what you like. But genuinely, there's going to be something in your head that you really don't like. Yeah. And it's a really yeah. good way of teasing out because it's a really good way of teasing out if there really is a fundamental issue or people are just nitpicking. And this is a real cultural problem, particularly in Britain, isn't it? Because the amount of people I presented, I present all the time, of course, in my current role and previous roles. And the default reaction is nothing. It might be nodding, or even with people nod and smile, it's usually an auto response that says they're listening or something. And so you have to probe to really know what's going on and, and, and get people's actual feelings. Yeah, no, I, I, think, I think you're exactly right. I think you're exactly right. But creativity, you know, it, it always comes back to this fundamental thing that it's new and it's different and humans struggle. So that's why in the book, you know, we have the nine chapters giving people, you know, it, it, it's a linear lesson, you know, through the nine lessons of, you know, if you know what you're doing, stop doing it. Yeah. Through to lessons yeah. like don't be afraid to be afraid, you know, because you will start feeling fear and it's fine. Mm. And there is good fear. And then getting into a little bit more of the 
get comfy with chaos, be willing to be unreasonable, because yeah. often you're not being unreasonable. You're just not agreeing with people. That's not being unreasonable. Yes. yes you're, you're actually yes. being perfectly reasonable, but you just don't agree with them. So you have to agree <laughs> to disagree and get comfy with that. And then you start getting into some of the other lessons, you know, the yeah. ones about, you know, not fearing failure, hating consensus. But you have to go on this quite interesting but rational, but linear journey through the kind of nature and nurture of why it is that we can't do creative things, new things. You're right. I and think fear and failure is along the way. I think the fear and failure is so important in this topic area. It's really interesting, and and, and I can't remember if I mentioned this on the podcast before or not. But I, I got the privilege of going out to Tel Aviv actually and meeting some Israeli startups. Fascinating, absolutely. I had a you know like a week of intense kind of meeting about 60 different startups the couple of things really struck me one one was how everyone in israel serves in the military for four years and are, and gets put into uncomfortable situations where they have to make decisions on the front line quickly and usually with very little experience so they get thrown in the deep end which i think creates a level of embracing risk making decisions taking jumps creative jumps solving things in the moment that sort of thing. the other thing was interesting and i met one of the biggest uh, venture capitalists out there and he said his observation coming to the west is we're afraid to admit failure like nobody at a dinner party talks about their business that didn't work it, it, it's almost a point of shame and he said but if anyone pitched to me and hadn't failed i would throw them out and he just said because if you've never failed you've never tried you've never learned you've never got the lessons and he was adamant that every business he invested in he wanted to invest in people that could demonstrably talk about how i failed yeah, what i've learned Dan- Dan Wyden was Dan Wyden was Dan Wyden who obviously knows a thing or two about creativity. He he would always say that no one's of any use to me unless they failed three times. That's what he'd always say, right? You know, you've got you've got to have made mistakes, you've got to have tried things. And but the fear does get in the way. I mean, I reference a book in in in, in chapter I think it's chapter three. Um, it is chapter three. Don't be afraid to be afraid. By Margie Kerr. It's an absolutely fascinating book called Scream adventures in the science of fear and it's a wonderful 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 book around just how humans approach being scared you know and it explains things like the jump scare and why we like horror films and why we love roller coasters and it's really good but but fear is so powerful you know it is i know it's a cliche because it's slide six of pretty much one in four presentations that have ever been given but that Maya Angelou thing about people not forgetting how it made you feel. Yes. It's yes, so totally. powerful because those it's, fears, it's those fears you felt yeah. in childhood, those things you had are so powerful. Yeah. And those fears that your ancestors felt hardwired into you to walk away from yeah. those things. And, yeah. you know, but you will have to get used to being afraid. And of course, this is why the book is called The Creative Nudge. You can't just yeah. do it, right? Yeah. So one of the one of the lessons, one of the first lessons that I learned in behavioral science, you know, sitting down, I've known Rory for Rory Sutherland for like twenty five years, right? We, you know, we've been colleagues on a number of occasions, and you know, and and he obviously taught me quite a bit about behavioral science in the early days. And one of the first lessons I learned about behavioral science was that it's behavior that changes attitude, not the other way around. Right? You can't change attitudes to change behavior. The humans don't work that way. And one of the one of the key things that I studied when Mick and I were doing chapter three was phobia therapy. You know, so so doing new things is a phobia, neophobia. So if you treat it like any phobia, you know, from heights to spiders, 
and you follow the same method of, of reducing phobia and solving phobia. And in many ways, that is sort of the central spine of the book because you can't just go, oh, mate, just do some new things. Humans don't yeah. work that way. You have to do no, they don't. familiar things, but in unfamiliar ways. You have to... One of the concepts I always talk about in with you know with me, you, you have to crab walk people where you want them <laughs> to go. And if you've ever read Gunter Grass's book Crab Walk, it's really interesting. He, people often think that crabs walk sideways, right? They talk about this. Crabs walk sideways. They're one of the fastest sprinters in the animal kingdom. It's just they run forwards in quite tiny diagonal steps. So if you watch a crab run up a beach, it'll run 100 meters up a beach incredibly quickly, but it'll run 85 meters that way. At the same time. And, and so that's, I think, what you have to do with new things. What the nudges yeah. are intended to do, and they are little, because if they weren't, they'd be called shoves. They're intended <laughs> just to help you crab walk your way into doing new things. And each chapter has mm. five or six off the antidote. So the antidote tells you what you have to do to get over the nature and nurture that stops you being creative. And then there's five or six nudges per chapter that just no, that you can incorporate into your life. Now, what we're not saying is do them all, because you'd be like avalanche with like 45, 50 nudges. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You would but basically, put a couple in to your life, one or two, you know, every week or so. And it just, again, with things like, the, the ones that are particularly useful to me, if it's the early part of the book, are getting comfortable with chaos and recognising when you're doing the same old, same old thing. Because sometimes you don't even know you're doing it. Well, it's it's your it, as you said before, it's it's our human nature to take the path of least resistance, isn't it? That that that's what we're we're built for comfort, and you need to make yourself uncomfortable and change the environment and do that. That's where the creative leaps, the connections, all happen, isn't it? Well, well, it is, and there's another there's another thing in the modern world that doesn't help. So we are creatures of habit. You know, we know what we like, we like what we know. We keep doing the same thing over and over again because it makes us feel happy and, and we get into habituation. But in the modern world, what really doesn't help and actually properly amplifies this is technology and algorithms. So, you know, so on something like Amazon, you know, you like this book, The Creative Nudge, obviously. <laughs> no, but you course, like this yeah. book, so therefore you will like this other book that's pretty much identical yeah. to it. Now, algorithms are brilliant for efficiency but dreadful for exploration. Yeah. You know, so when you're on Spotify and it says, oh, you like this band, so therefore you like this band, they're not going to go, you liked Ed Sheeran, therefore why didn't you listen to a bit of Slipknot? They're not going to do key, that, I think they? the, No, they're not. I think the key is, if my house on things go by, is share your Spotify with your daughters and then, and then you get you get the most random collection. Well, my, my, my end of year Spotify was the most embarrassing thing ever. We got a puppy last year. So my wife set our Spotify at home to play the Baja men who let the dogs out every three hours. So, so at the end of the year, my Spotify wrapped for 2021 told me that I'd played Who Let the Dogs Out by the Baja Man 1,200 times. That's genius. I love it. So, something, else, something that stood out as well as I was reading your book, with, which I think is I've, I've seen as well quite recently in my career, is, is the power of being unreasonable as well. I know this t takes me back to a very short spell I had at Brewdog. And one of the things I learned from James, the founder, was he would always be incredibly unreasonable with his targets, expectations, deadlines, everything else. And and it became unmanageable. In fact, you've got to balance being unreasonable with being practical, how you actually deliver it. But just, just you know, he would text me a question at, late at night and go, you've got 24 hours and you've got to come back with five ideas that will leverage the internet to make us the world's biggest beer brand within the next six months. You know, 
He would just come up with a completely unreasonable premise, but it didn't half get you thinking things you'd never thought before. And he'd also do it with a number of people. He'd he'd often ask five or six people the same question and then almost crowdsource, you know, the creativity. And then what he was good at doing, actually, was then finding ways of executing that. The game being creative in the execution. Like I said, the word unreasonable is an interesting word to use because what it fundamentally doesn't mean is, you know, if you'll forgive the term, it doesn't mean be a dick, right? That's not what it means. No one likes that. You know, if you take unreasonable to a certain level, you end up with huge amounts of staff writing letters about you and it blowing up on the internet about six to eight weeks <laughs> well, there you ago. Go. Okay, well, there you, go, yeah. you know, that's that, not there. We have it. That's not being yeah. unreasonable yeah. in my eyes. It's being yeah. Yeah, yeah. a bit of a bully and not actually a nice person. But unreasonable often just means that you're not going along with what everybody else wants, right? Now, you know, because I've been asked in our industry often the client agency dynamic. Because it's so unbalanced, I've often referred to it as like the parents' pocket money discussion. Do you know what I mean? Eventually, you can just get to the point and go, because I said so, because I am the client. You know, I mean, so it's, you know, mm-hmm. people often laugh about partnerships. In most cases, it's not a partnership. Yeah. You know, it isn't a partnership at all. You know, all the best ones are, all the best ones I've ever had have been, you know, mutually respectful conversations and where you have the ability to phone up and say, hang on a minute, mate, this is me you're talking to. Do you know, what I mean? I'm telling you that, you know, for your own, you know, not for my benefit, for yours, you know. But I think the thing with the unreasonable is it goes back to the thing about being prepared to be wrong, being prepared to be different, means that society will often always think you're unreasonable. And there's that wonderful Bernard Shaw quote where he says that basically the reasonable man tries to fit in with the world, whereas the unreasonable man bends the world to fit in. So all progress relies on the unreasonable man. Now, of course, it it works equally for any gender, you know, Bernard yeah, Shaw yeah. obviously was doing it in the 19th yeah. century. But but yeah. it's it, to me, that is the core. You're not actually being rude or difficult or, you know, unhelpful or bullying. You're just doing what society considers unreasonable, which is not agreeing. 100%. I think you've hit it on the head because it's the power not to be swayed by consensus, not to do what you think your boss wants to hear, not to do what makes you afraid, not to do what, you know, et cetera, et cetera, isn't it? it that's, that's what being unreasonable is, when you've got the freedom to say exactly what you think. Otherwise, and, and I, I find the bigger the company, the, the, the more reasonable everybody becomes as well, because you get more consensus, you get more power dynamics, you get more myths and beliefs, you get more, you know, th- this is how we do it. You get more of the client agency, do what you're told kind of thing. My favourite, my favourite nudge in the book is in chapter six. Be unreasonable, right? It genuinely, it's my favourite nudge. I really love it, and I think it's a really good example about what we mean by being unreasonable. And it's the nudge that says, "What would Gaga?" So you ask yourself, <laughs> "What would Gaga yeah, do?" Yeah, yeah. And, and and what it exists yeah. for. There's a lovely image in the book of when she went to that gala evening wearing a dress made of raw meat. That's it. Yeah. And and so let's say you were going out this evening, you know, to a awards ceremony and everyone had been told they were wear, they had to wear a black dress you know if you decided to wear a white dress you'd think that was a really brave decision you know pushing the boat out unreasonable being difficult you know she went wearing a dress made of raw meat so i think whatever your idea is or whatever it is you're thinking of doing if you ask yourself what's the gaga version of this you know what would gaga yeah. do here yeah. and suddenly your brave unreasonable suggestion suddenly doesn't actually look that unreasonable. It looks very reasonable compared to the Gaga version yeah. of what it is. Yeah, and so yeah, I think yeah. unreasonable is a really weird word. It's like a word like unacceptable. Do you know what I mean? It's like, well, okay, fine. 
but who's setting the criteria? You know, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's a lot of people who think, you know, what I would think is perfectly reasonable behaviour. They may think it's totally unreasonable, you know, and and I think society judges unreasonable to be dissent. And I think dissent can be incredibly mm. positive. Mm. I agree with you. Listen, mate, I think that is an amazing peak ending, actually, to, to, to our conversation. Dissent can be incredibly powerful. I, I totally agree, by the way. And, and, and I've, I, I always feel like I've been the dissenter in everywhere I've been. It sometimes got me fired, but uh, most of the time it's been healthy, hopefully. I love that. I, I think that's, that's brilliant. And, and what a brilliant nudge as well. What would Gargar do? I think that's a tremendous question to ask in most situations. I, I, I've been doing it. <laughs> what you I, think I think, about... Well, what's, what's interesting on that nudge as well? It goes into the next chapter, which is if you're not happy being unreasonable and you're not happy being a dissenter, well, don't. And there's quite an interesting technique that worked very well for a couple of celebrities. So Beyonce Knowles has Sasha Fierce. That's her alter ego. And that's the one who's more outrageous, more outspoken. Yes. It's not my fault. It's not Beyonce's fault. Sasha Fierce did it. So she fierce made her mm. do it. Now, Eminem used to have this in the early part of his career with Slim Shady. You know, Slim Shady was the dodgy alter ego. Yes, Eminem yeah, was the yeah. singer. Slim Shady was the kind of... And so what you can do is if you're not happy being unreasonable, well, set yourself... So, you know, you can just be unreasonable for half an hour. Just say no to everything for half an hour or create an alter ego. There are ways... There are, obviously, nudges, yeah. you know, that you can yes. do. <laughs> but they're all quite simple. There's nothing in the book... And we set ourselves our own criteria because obviously we'd sit around, we'd write the chapter, we'd work out the antidote, and then we'd work in the evenings, Mick and I, with a couple of behavioural scientists, three actually, and then with UCL, the head of evolutionary psychology at, at, at UCL, was very helpful with some of her students who helped us as well. And we would sit around and just brain, you know, we, 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 would, we would work on nudges together, not brainstorm, we'd work on nudges together. And then that would give us like 50 nudges. But what we always then applied the criteria to was, was it simple? Because there's loads of nudges people had, like, what you should do is set up a WhatsApp group and then do this. And then who's going to do that? Yeah. No one's going to do that. You know, asking it, yourself got, what would Gaga do, yeah. that's a pretty easy nudge, isn't it? You know, It's got to be easy. You've got to make it easy. Listen, Kip, if people want to get hold of the book and obviously read up on the nudges and how they can uh, become more creative, where can they find it? Well, it, it's available at all good bookstores, you know, and Amazon, joke. But no, it's, it's available all, you know, it's available <laughs> everywhere, you know. You can get it, at, you know, from your Blackwells to your Waterstones to your Foils to your Amazons. It's available at Wordery. If anyone's listening to this outside of the UK, you know, there's the US, it, uh, it's distributed through Target, so you can buy it online there. Yep. And it's in lots and lots of countries. People have, you know, I've, I've been sent pictures from Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Romania, Germany. It's great. I've loved seeing it out in the wild. Right. And I've That's loved exciting, seeing people doing all this stuff. Amazing. And if people want to get in touch, how can they get in touch with you? I'm pretty easy to find. If, in my day job, you can find me at kev at harbour.london, you know, where we apply so much of the sort of nudge thinking and the original creative thinking to what we do for clients. And also, you know, one of the things that I do as well is I've been doing it for, as I said, Google, Lego, British Telecom. I've got sessions coming up for YouTube, BBC, Marks and Spencer. You know, I'll happily come in and talk about how to unleash creative thinking and original thinking in organisations because it really is the key to progress. 
It is. Uh, The number one impact on your business is creativity. Brilliant. Listen, thank you so much. And uh, I'll let you get on with your mince pies. Thanks, mate. So thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode of the Uncensored CMO. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kev. And most of all, I hope you're feeling more creative and a little bit more inspired to put some of those nudges to good use in solving business problems. Um, If you'd like to listen to the Uncensored CMO more, then there's nothing better than subscribing. Just go to Apple Podcasts, hit the subscribe button and never miss an episode again. That'd be great. If you want to leave me a review, that'd be wonderful. Reviews are so important to me. And uh, any feedback you've got, please do let me know. If there are guests you think I should have on or feedback for how to improve the show, I would love to hear that. Lastly, if you want to follow me, I'm on LinkedIn. Just search for John Evans and you'll find me. Uh, Or on Twitter, I go by the handle at CMO. Thanks again, everybody. And I look forward to you joining me next time.